for all you 90s kids. It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's good advice that you just can't take. And who would have thought it figures? Who sang that? Alanis Morissette. What's it called? Isn't ironic? Ironic. It's called ironic. Isn't that great? Eh? Uh, I know you're impressed. Um, today, we're going to discover a little bit about what irony is. Ronnie? It's the recoil. It is today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Today, let me just double check. Um, we are going to learn a little bit of irony. You know what irony is, right? It's not that stuff that you dig up out the ground. Um, that you dig out of mind. That's a different kind of iron. Um, irony is a form of speech when you expect one thing to happen, but kind of the opposite happens, and sometimes it's amusing when that happens, when the opposite turns out to be true. doesn't quite work out. So, so we're going to read about irony this morning. We're also going to read a eulogy this morning, and so the title of my sermon is actually Eulogy and Irony, which leads me to another 1980s song. Eulogy and irony, Simon. And that will be the end of my karaoke this morning. <laughs> oh boy, yes, that's just bad. So we're going to be at 2 Samuel. We're finally going to read 2 Samuel this morning. If you want to turn there, the very first chapter. But I think before we get in, before we actually read the chapter, I need to kind of bring you up to speed a little bit on what's gone on in 1 Samuel. Let me start by saying that originally there wasn't a 2 Samuel. There was, the, the 2 Samuel didn't exist. In fact, 1 Samuel didn't exist either. What existed was the scroll of Samuel. And it was a very big scroll because add the books together, chapters together, and it's like almost chapter, it's almost 60 chapters worth. It's a, it's a healthy chunk, and when you don't have a, a book that you can turn around, but you've got a scroll that you've got to kind of twist, it was just a bit bulky and awkward. And so, some bright spot a couple thousand years ago decided to, shock and horror, cut the scroll in half. And that best, the best place to cut it, they figured, was at the death of Saul, because that just seemed to be an appropriate kind of major point in the story to have a break. And so we ended up with two scrolls. Could I ask someone to bring me some water? Thank you, Bradley. You're a superstar. So the story started right at the beginning of Samuel, with Samuel being born and growing up in the temple, and he becomes Israel's last judge. He is also acts as their prophet and their priest. He grows up at the end of the period of the Judges, where the repeated line in the book of Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Bradley, thank you. You will receive your reward in heaven. <laughs> um, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so through the book of Judges, you've got the cycle of the people of Israel worshipping dodgy gods and false idols. And then the enemies invade. They become, they end up as slaves. They're defeated. They repent. They turn to God. God delivers them and brings them back into Shalom, where they go back to worshipping idols. And there's this constant repetition of that cycle. And the guy who wrote the book of Judges, probably Samuel, seems to think, that one answer to this problem is, if only the people of Israel had a king. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
So the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, listen, you're old and your sons are awful. We need someone better. Appoint for us a king who will fight our battles for us. That's what they want. That's the reason for a king back then. They want a warlord who will go out and defeat their enemies for them. And Samuel says, do you know what you're asking for? Do you know what the king will do? He'll take your sons and take them to war. He will take your daughters and turn them into his servants. He will tax you. He will take your land. And the people of Israel says, that sounds great. We'll have one of them. And so Saul is appointed as the very first king of Israel. Said it last week, he's tall and handsome. And that is apparently the defining characteristic of the king for the people of Israel. That's what we want. We want someone tall. And so they choose uh, Saul to be king. But it's very clear as you go through 1 Samuel that Saul is the people's king. And he can't actually deliver the people from anything. He has minor victories here and there. One of his very first battles is actually, uh, it looks great and it finishes off with him looking like he's won. But in that battle he actually sows the seeds of his own destruction. And at the end, because he hasn't done what God had told him to do, Samuel says, God is taking the kingdom away from you and giving it to someone else. And so onto the scene comes David, and David is the opposite of Saul, whereas Saul is the firstborn of a very well-to-do family. David is the lastborn, and he's a shepherd. He's, out, he's, he's a herd boy. He's left out with the sheep. Saul is tall and handsome. David is ruddy. I don't know what ruddy means, but it, probably ruddy awful. I don't know. It's not the same... It's not the same as tall and handsome. Whatever, all right? But, and it becomes clear as time goes by that David is the one who can deliver God's people. He is the one who delivers them from their enemies. But he and Saul end up as enemies themselves. And they're at such odds with each other that by the end of 1 Samuel, David has had to leave the country and go and live in the land of the Philistines. So remember last week, God's people living in God's place under God's rule? Well, David is God's people, but he's in exile. He's not in God's place. He goes and lives in a town called Ziglag, and he kind of submits to the king of the Philistines. And, and while he's in Ziklag, David goes out with his team of men, and they raid Canaanite villages and wipe them out. It's what God told them to do. The Philistine king comes to David and says, what have you been doing? And David says, I've been raiding in Israel, and I've been wiping out Israelite villages. David lies. Um, and the Philistine's like, awesome, what a great guy to have in our team. Nothing like a traitor to his own people. But there comes a moment where there now becomes a big battle between the Philistines and Israel. And Saul assembles the people of Israel, the people of God, and the Philistines assemble his army and includes David in that. And now David is marching to war against God's people. And you go, this can't be right. We can't have God's king fighting God's people. That, 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 there's something wrong with this. And the Philistines all get together and say, hang on a sec, we don't want David and us and our team. He seems to be one of us, but, you know, he's actually from there. What happens if he decides to turn, change sides halfway through the battle? And so David is sent back to Ziklag. And he's a bit bleak about that. But when he gets to Ziklag, he finds that Canaanite raiders have come into the town of Ziklag and all the women and children have been kidnapped and taken as slaves. David goes out and chases the Canaanites, catches up with them, kills them, and rescues his, the, the women and children for him and his, of him and his men. In the meantime, Saul is fighting his last battle against the Philistines 
And it goes badly for Saul. So it's gone well for David. It goes badly for Saul. Saul and the people of Israel lose the battle to the Philistines. And Saul, at the end, stands on a little hillside, I guess, and looks out over the dead bodies everywhere and goes, my kingdom is gone. It's all over. Turns to his armor bearer and says, kill me now. And the armor bearer says, no chance. I'm not raising my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to kill you. And Saul says, fine, I'll do it myself. And falls on his sword, commits suicide. And so we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag for two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked? Tell me. He, he said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, and I said, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. And then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but still barely alive. And so I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men who, who with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord in the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. And David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Let the lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offering of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of sword no longer rubbed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O oh, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of woman. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished.
So the story starts, right, with, with David celebrating a victory, but not sure of what's gone on in the other big battle down the road. Has it been victory or defeat for God's people? And this young Amalekite has somehow found David. I guess he knows that David lives in Ziklag. And he is the first to come and bring news of the battle to David. And this young guy greatly misjudges David. Um, now, there's a couple of things in this passage. The one is that, you know, is this guy actually telling the truth? Is he telling the truth or is he telling a lie? Um, did he actually kill Saul as he claims? Or did he find Saul dead on the battlefield and has just come to David with a story in order to hopefully gain something from David? Um, and there's backwards and forwards about commentators and theologians about which one's which. Because, you see, 1 Samuel ended with Saul dead. I happen to think that the guy's telling the truth. I suspect that Saul has slid onto his own sword and, and can't even kill himself. <laughs> can't even do that right. And that this guy is one of those who lurk on battlefields. Who Back in the day, people would do this, wander around the battlefields and pillage the dead bodies before anyone else could get to them, go and find trinkets and anything of value. And this guy's wandering around the battlefield and come upon Saul at the end. Saul's on his sword, but he's not quite dead yet. And Saul sees him and says, please, just, just end it for me. And he actually says to him, come and stand over me. Apparently the Hebrew says, come and stand on me. And it says that this young guy then went and stood on Saul and killed him. So I don't know, back then the, the idea would be that you just go, go around and slit throats just to make sure. Um, but maybe this guy did more than just slit a throat. Maybe he just you know, leaned in on that sword a little bit and gave it a little bit of a wiggle to make sure that it was all over, right? Make sure that Saul is dead. He's, and it's clear that Saul is dying. He's not going to survive. And so this guy's just, just providing the coup de grace, right? There's irony in this because David has to ask him, who are you? Saul asks him, who are you? And it's always a good question to ask yourself, who are you? Where are you from? It's always a good question to ask. But this guy's answer is kind of telling. He says, Twice, three times, got to remember, I am an Amalekite. Now we have to go back into 1 Samuel to figure out a little bit about the Amalekites. And I think it's 1 Samuel 14 or 15 or thereabouts. Uh, let me just tell you the story. It's that battle where Saul sows the seeds of his own destruction. Because God speaks to Samuel, Samuel speaks to Saul and says, here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to go and kill the Amalekites. And God says, I want you to go, and you need to wipe them all out. You need to destroy the whole lot of them. And Samuel says, before you go, assemble your army, wait for me. I'm going to come and offer a sacrifice to God. And once the sacrifice has been made, you can go into battle. Saul gets the army together. Samuel doesn't arrive. Two days, three days, four days. <coughs> And the men in Saul's army slowly start sneaking away because the army are not paid soldiers, they're farmers. And if you remember this, farmers with pointy sticks because they don't have metal, they don't have iron. Um, so, so the army, slowly, the numbers begin to dwindle because the farmers need to go back and harvest or plant crops or whatever season of the year it is. And they can't hang around for day after day after day waiting for some guy to pitch up and offer a sacrifice. So Saul goes, I can't wait for Samuel any longer. And after seven days have gone by, Saul offers the sacrifice himself. 
Saul the king decides to act as Saul the priest. No sooner has he offered the sacrifice than guess who arrives? Samuel. And Samuel goes, idiot. That's not what you should have done. You're not God's priest. And Saul says, well, I couldn't wait. So Samuel says, well, off you go. Go and fight the battle. God is with you. And off they go. And Samuel says, destroy everything. And off they go. And uh, all goes well in the battle, apparently. And on the way back from the battle, Saul meets Samuel. And Samuel says, how did it go? And Saul says, wonderful, we killed them all. And before we go further, just like a little aside, what about that? I mean, a lot of people have these questions about the Old Testament, about this whole thing of ethnic cleansing, because that's what it feels like. Why be so brutal? Why kill them all? Because the command from God is, kill the soldiers, kill the old men, kill the old ladies, kill the women, Kill the children, kill their sheep, kill their cows, just like everything. It sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? It's one thing to go to battle, it's another thing to completely obliterate an entire nation, people group. Why on earth? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The one is that the Amalekites have always been the enemy of Israel. And so, um, when the people of Israel were coming through the desert, out of Egypt, coming into the Promised Land, it was the Amalekites who would ambush, lay ambushes along the way, and the Amalekites would always, primarily anyway, prey on the, the weak, the infirm, the women and the children, those who lingered, those who kind of, you know, walked a little slower than the rest. So they've been a pretty nasty and unpleasant thorn in the flesh of the people of Israel. Of course, that was a couple of hundred years ago, but this is the problem, right? That the Amalekites keep having children, and their children... What, what, happens to, what, happened to, what happens to baby Amalekites one day? They become big Amalekites. It's an amazing thing. And if you don't stop them somehow, there will always be a next generation of big Amalekites who will do what? Attack the people of Israel. More than that, the Amalekites and all the other Canaanite tribes were in, involved in some dreadful stuff at the time. They were uh, people who were, um, uh, their, their primary worship was, was around temple prostitution, which, which is actually all about the degradation of women. They participated in child sacrifice and child offerings. And God is saying, listen, we're going to establish a kingdom here. And we can't establish a kingdom, and God's kingdom... Remember my picture? Oh, it's not up there. It might come sometime. But, but remember that, that God's kingdom is a kingdom that is built on justice and righteousness and peace. And does the degradation of women and the destruction of children sound like a kingdom of righteousness and peace? Is that a kingdom of justice? And so God says, that's not going to be part of my kingdom. But there's another reason. God says that you need to get rid of these people. He says, if you leave them, guess what happens? You become like them. And God says, if you leave them, pretty soon you'll be involved in temple prostitution. And pretty soon you'll be offering your children as sacrifices. And guess what happens to the people of Israel? They leave the tribes. They end up participating in, in temple prostitution and sacrificing their children. Exactly as God says. So God says, we need to clear these people. And the point for us, of course, is not that you go out and need to do a little bit of ethnic cleansing yourself. This is not the point. Do not strap on a sword and go off. But to realize that we wage our own battles against flesh and, and sin 
and the devil. We all have our own addictions, whether it's an addiction to the bottle or an addiction to a screen. And we know that those addictions will rob us of our families. We know, I don't need to paint pictures, we know that we are slaves in many ways to the philosophies of our day. We're captured in, in a consumerist and capitalist system. And they, those systems will turn us into slaves. They will tax us. That's what capitalism does, right? They will rob us. They will rob us of our families because we, we, you know, we need to climb the next rung on the ladder. And that means a little bit more time at the office, which means a little bit less time at home, which means a little bit less of family and a little bit more of the philosophy of this world. And we all need to be delivered from these things. And so what will deliver me from this stuff? Will it be king job? Will it be king socialism? Will it be queen girlfriend? And we appoint our little gods, to, to our little kings, to deliver us from all of this stuff. And so the application this morning, or at this point anyway, is not go and burn down the mall or go burn down the bottle shop, but we need to kill the Amalekites that live inside of us. And so Samuel says to Saul, kill them all. And Saul says, I have killed them all. And Samuel says, really? What is the sound of bleating sheep that I hear in my ear? And Saul goes, oh, <laughs> let me, uh, yeah, you see, the people, they wanted to keep the sheep. And actually what we're going to do, Samuel, don't worry about it. We're going to offer these sheep as a sacrifice to God. And Samuel says, uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. And rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Saul, you're in trouble. And then Samuel says, so won't you introduce me to your new friend? And Saul says, <laughs> you know, this um, is my new best friend, Agag. He's the king of the Amalekites. So I mean, we can kill Amalekites, but we can't kill the king. That would be, that, you know, king, no, we, we can't do that. And Samuel says, hmm. Why don't you step forward, Mr. Agag? And Mr. Agag, we're told, he goes, I just love this part of the Bible, right? Agag, Agag goes, surely the fear of death has passed from me. Because why does he need to fear? There's an old man in front of him, and he's a holy man. And so he steps up before Samuel with a smile on his face. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible that really needs to be turned into a bumper sticker. And then Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. I guess Samuel's too old to just poke him with a sword, so he's got to like, uh, 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 and he hacks him into little pieces, as if to say to Saul, this is how you deal with the Malachites. Now, do you see the irony? Saul fails to kill Amalekites, and who ends up killing Saul? An Amalekite. Saul is killed by the very person that he should have eliminated years ago. One of the old Puritans, a guy called John Owen, says this. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And again, repeating myself, we know this is true. You know that your addictions, you know what they will bring you in the end. You know that if, it, if, it, if there's an addiction to the bottle, then at the very least your liver is in trouble in a few years' time. Your addiction will destroy you. You know that the drunk destroys his own family. You might say, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't drink, you know, I don't have you know, wine with my cornflakes. That's fine. 
But you know, if, if, you, if you needing to knock back a bottle of wine with every meal, perhaps, perhaps it's a warning sign. If you need a couple of beers every night just to... Perhaps, perhaps that's something to consider. It's not to say thou shalt not have a cold beer. By all means, yesterday was a perfect day for a cold beer. It's not to say thou shalt not have a glass of wine. Today looks like a great day for a glass of red wine. But beware... Beware the addiction or the screen that draws you in. My wife says I spend far too much time looking at this thing. I think we all do, don't we? And whether it's the, the, the game time that just absorbs you, that sucks the life from you, robs you from your family because you're just not present, you're just not engaged. Or it's the naughty pictures, the pornography, and you know that will ultimately destroy you. You know that that's just like the Amalekites and the Canaanites, degrading women, degrading you, dehumanizing you. You know that our addictions will destroy us in the end. You know that a full embrace of our culture and all that it proposes as the way to joy and meaning and fulfillment and happiness will leave you taxed, will leave you ruined, will leave you broken. So yes, we do. We sacrifice our kids on the altar of work. And the answer is not become a socialist and move to Cuba because capitalism is killing us. You need to figure out what your Amalekite is. You need to figure out what the temptations and sins are that you face. And if you don't know, ask your wife. <laughs> ask those who know you best. You need to figure out what are the philosophies that have shaped my mind that if left undefeated will kill you in the end. What has David been doing while Saul is busy dying? What has David been doing as Saul leads God's people into their greatest defeat at the hands of the Philistines? Well, David has been chasing a tribe of Canaanites who have turned his family into slaves. Now, do you want to get, you don't need to guess, do you want to read verse 1 and figure out the name of the tribe that has taken David's family captive? It's the Amalekites. Man, these guys just keep popping up all over the place. So I guess Saul didn't do a very good job of wiping out the Amalekites after all. Because here they are again, popping up 30 years later, and the Amalekites have taken God's people captive, turned them into slaves, kidnapped them, bringing, brought about fear and suffering. And what does David do? David chases them, and David... Kills the Amalekites. David does what Saul couldn't do. The thing that Saul couldn't get right, David accomplishes. The people's king cannot bring them victory, but God's king? God's king catches the Amalekites, kills the Amalekites, and rescues God's people from their clutches. How do you go about killing your Amalekites? You can do the 12-step program. That'll work. That's a good thing to do. You can work on your self-control. That would be awesome. 
more self-control is always a good thing to have. You can stop falling in love with the power and the trinkets that only money can buy. Well done. That's the answer. But ultimately, only God's king can deliver you from your enemies. It's only God's king when he comes in who defeats our enemies and, and rescues us from our addictions and from our slavery. Capitalism does not rescue us from socialism. Socialism will not save us from capitalism. It is God's king who delivers us and brings us what no economic system can offer us. Shalom, peace, true prosperity of the soul. And then, of course, there's just another little twist in the tale here because this young man has arrived in David's camp with Saul's crown and Saul's sword and he's expecting David to be super happy and he's like, after all, this is the guy that has just presented the kingdom of Israel to David on a plate. David, this is yours. Go and take the kingdom. I've brought the crown. You're going to reward me, right? Because flip, this is awesome. And David's just wanting to make sure, who are you again? Oh, I'm an Amalekite. Do you know what I've just been doing to Amalekites? You know what God says I should be doing with Amalekites? And actually, forgetting even that you're an Amalekite, how is it that you could admit that you've murdered God's anointed? Because it's not euthanasia, it's murder. And you expect to be rewarded for murder? And David, it's funny words that he uses, he says, How is it that you did not fear to kill the Lord's Messiah? I'm not sure if I would ever have thought of calling Saul the Messiah, but that's what David calls him. At one stage, Saul was the one who was appointed by God to deliver Israel, and David still sees that despite all the trouble that David has brought to Israel. And so, the Amalekite must die. Does it sound cruel? Does it sound harsh? I mean, this guy thought he was doing a good thing. He thought he was helping David. He thought he was presenting David with the kingdom. He's expecting a reward from David. How does it go so wrong for him? Again, forgetting the fact even that he's an Amalekite. He's admitted to being a murderer. And generally through world history, generally the punishment for murder is death. And so actually what's happening here is really just justice. It might not be justice that we like. But it's justice none the same. And again, it's because God's kingdom is a place where justice rules and reigns. God's kingdom is not going to be built in a kingdom of murderers. It's a kingdom that is built on justice and righteousness and truth. So many ironies, but I hope you get the point, right? Be killing sin before sin kills you. If God's king does not deal with the Amalekites that lurk in your soul, if, you, if you're going to protect them and offer them refuge, if you're going to spare the king, then one day the, those very same things will enslave you and destroy you. The second part of this chapter, the eulogy, has some other issues and some other problems for me anyway. Because David sings this song for Saul and Jonathan. And to be honest, it feels like he just glosses over the reality of Saul's life. You know that whole thing, if you, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything? Well, what this should have been then is about, I don't know, a couple of days of silence from David. Because surely there is nothing good that you can say about Saul. All Saul has done is made David's life misery. From the very first moment, Saul has been jealous of David. He has threatened David's life. He has forced David's family into exile. David's mother and father have had to leave Israel and go live somewhere else because of the fear of what Saul is about. 
David has been forced to live in caves. David has lost his wife because of Saul. His life has been threatened. And frankly, Saul has led all Israel into defeat after defeat after defeat. What good is there to say about Saul? And yet David eulogizes the dead. How the mighty have fallen. And you've got to think, surely David recognizes that, man, this is a clear path to the throne now. I just need to saddle up a horse and get in there and claim the, th- claim the crown, claim the throne. But instead he hangs around for a couple of days, days of mourning. What happens next, we'll see, is there's going to be seven years of civil war before David can actually take the throne. Surely he should be rushing to grab that throne now. Instead, surely he should be celebrating the death of Saul and going, long live the new king. But no, he and his men are mourning the death of Saul. The song ends up being really a song about the death of two people, David's greatest enemy and David's greatest friend, the one who hated David and the one who loved David. But there's a bit more than that going on. David starts this lament, he starts this song by saying these words, the glory or your, your glory, O Israel, lies slain on the heights. David's greatest lament here is for the glory of God. Saul and Jonathan, in a way, represent the glory of God to Israel. But it really is the defeat of the kingdom that has brought out this mourning for David. There's a pouring out of sorrow, not just for the death of Saul, not just for the death of the king, but for the death of the dreams and hopes that Saul represented. Because Saul was the one who was first appointed, who was going to lead the people into freedom, who was going to lead the people into victory. This was going to be the beginning of great things for the people of Israel. And all of that is gone. The hopes and dreams of Israel lie decaying on a hillside. All, as someone said, all that was potential has been fractured. The glory of Israel lies slain on a hillside. A second thing to see in this is also is David's words about Jonathan. We know that Saul was David's enemy, yet David still speaks highly of him. But it's Jonathan that I want to consider because Jonathan was the heir to the throne. And yet Jonathan knows that David is the true king. And Jonathan knows that he will never rule, that David is always going to be the one who will rule. And so there's this, there's this tragedy waiting to happen. Where the, the, the expected king, the heir to the throne, is not going to get on the throne. Saul hates David. Jonathan loves him. And David says here, in a way that no woman has ever loved him. And our modern society makes much of that. Here's what's going on. It's quite. I, I, there are two children of Saul. And David is married to one of them. David is married to Jonathan's sister. And, and Micah, Michael, is, um, she falls in love with David the warrior. But we'll find out in a couple of chapters' time, when David comes and worships before the Lord, and David puts on the, the clothes of a servant, of a slave, and worships God, and Michael despises him. And so the... This is not a big application point, but the love of a woman is fickle. (laughs) It's not. It's not. It's not in my experience, but it's in David's experience. Whereas the love that David has experienced from 
from, from, from Jonathan. Jonathan loves the warrior and the worshipper. And Jonathan is willing to give up his right to the throne and his right to rule in order to bow the knee to the true king of Israel. That is the extent of, David, of, of Jonathan's love for David. So let me make two comments at the end today on those last two points. Number one, the glory of Israel. Who really is the glory of Israel slain on a hillside? Where else do you find in Scripture the glory of Israel, one in which hopes and dreams have been invested, executed on a hillside? Does it not make you think of another hillside 1,500 years after this event? On a hillside outside of Jerusalem where the glory of Israel is led out and crucified. David talks here about the ones who were slain. The word slain is more than just killed or more than just died in battle. It's a word of sacrifice. Think again of the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. Think about those two disciples of Jesus that he met on the road to Emmaus uh, on the day of his resurrection. Where the two disciples say, we had such high hopes. We had such high hopes. We had such dreams. We thought he would be the one who would deliver us. And he's executed and dead on a hillside. Except that the true story of the real anointed Messiah of God and the glory of Israel, it doesn't end on a hillside. The true Messiah dies, he's buried, sorry, Saul, the old Messiah, dies on the hillside and he's buried under a tree and he rots. But the true king dies on a hillside, he's buried in a tomb, and three days later, he emerges from that tomb and declares victory over all God's enemies including the Amalekites that lurk in your soul. And then consider the love of David and Jonathan. And David saying, you are dear to me and your love is more than the love of woman. And consider, consider this not just as two friends and oh, I must be like David, I need a nice friend. Consider this in the light of David is God's anointed and chosen king. And think about God's chosen king and his great love for you. And that our great king, the anointed one of God, calls you dear. And I know that sounds like something that your great aunt Agatha would say. Right? Oh dear. Um, but it just means special. The one I delight in. That's how God speaks of you. That's how Jesus speaks of you. That you are dear to me. And that he, he weeps in our defeats. He doesn't condemn. He weeps when he sees the Amalekites and the Philistines gaining the upper hand. David doesn't sing this song and go, Man, if only, if only Jonathan had tried harder. If only he put, on, put in a little bit more effort. If he'd practiced a bit more with his sword during the week. If they'd laid out the armies a little bit better. If they just had a little bit more savvy about battles. and, and, and if, if they just tried a bit. No. He doesn't go into condemn and blame and terror. He just, David weeps. Jesus weeps. Not condemns. His love is greater 
The question is, do we love him? David says of Jonathan, you're dear, and I love you. And Jonathan says of David, I love you. Do we love Jesus more than anything else? And oh, our souls are divided, aren't they? We're all over the place and love all sorts of things. Jonathan loved David. May we love David's greatest son, who is our glory. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. We're going to sing that last song we sang again. Who is the great king of glory? I've searched the world for a love that could fill my heart. But nothing compares to Jesus alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the life of David. And in seeing in this victory over our enemies. And seeing also our shortcomings and our how often we're just a bit like sword and we want to protect our Amalekites. Lord, help us identify our enemies that lurk within our, our souls. Give us courage to face them. And more than that, defeat them. Our Lord, you have conquered. Lead us into victory, we pray. Thank you that we are called dear by you and that you love us. Thank you for your glory, O Lord, on the hillside, but your greater glory in resurrection from the tomb. O Lord, how we love you. Amen. Won't you stand and sing, Jesus, you alone. <laughs>
your life on creation. You walked among your created undivided heart that we might love you in return. Pass us now with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folk.